This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I'm incredibly excited today to be recording in Portland, Oregon at FEAST, an incredible food festival that if you haven't been, I recommend it highly for the wonderful meals, the incredible chefs and talented cooks who are here, and an opportunity to eat around this fantastic city. On my podcast today, I have someone who I've admired from afar through a cookbook. Her name is Irene Cassis, and she wrote a book called The Palestinian Table. It was published in 2017, and she's hard at work on another book. Irene, welcome. Thank you. Broadly. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in Jerusalem. But my parents are from different parts of the country. My father is from the north, from the Galilee, close to the Lebanese and Syrian border. My mother is from a small town called Jejulia, which is right in the center of town, close to Tel Aviv. My parents are actually Christian and Muslim. My father is a Christian, my mother is a Muslim, which to this day is not very common and easy of a situation to find yourself in. Um, One of the reasons they live in Jerusalem is because of that. It's easier to have that kind of a marriage in a city versus a small town, but also for my father's work, and I grew up there. I'm curious about your parents' relationship Mm -hmm. and what it was like as their child. So neither of my parents is religious, which I think made it easier for us. And I remember when I was in elementary school, I would often get asked, are you Muslim or are you Christian? That's what people cared about. Everyone knew if you were Palestinian or Israeli, so they asked about religion. And I would always say, oh, I'm both. And people would say, you can't be both, you have to choose. So I would go home and ask my mother, well, what are we? And she would say, I'm Muslim, your father's Christian, you guys are both neither, whatever you want. What matters is that you're Palestinian, and what matters is that you're a good person. And so I guess that stuck. Um, So in in a way, you know, sometimes I used to feel a little bit like I didn't fit in here, I didn't fit in there, but the older I grew, I realized it was much more of a benefit to me to have the exposure to both of those outlooks than it was to have grown up just in a single... And do you have an opinion about religion at this point as you have grown up and then you have two little girls? I wish I did. My husband and I talk about this all the time. We say, you know, we don't go to church. We don't go to mosque. We don't practice anything at home. We passed by a church recently and my daughter goes, oh, what's this? And I said, a church. And she goes, what's that? And I felt so guilty. Like, my kids don't know much about religion. But with that said, I also know that my kids know they need to be good people because that is what's right and what's moral. And I'm not scaring them with, God's going to send you to hell or to heaven based on what you do. It's you have to be a good person because that's the way to make the world function for us to live together with other people, so on and so forth. So I go back and forth on these things, but no, I don't have an answer. I hope I will one of these days, but... <laughs> I think you have a spiritual answer. Yeah. 
right? And, and uh, perhaps in that you're trying to be a good person and breed goodness in the world, mm -hmm. it is the answer. I hope so. I mean, I think there's, I often say this, I think there's a God in every one of us. And it's what we put out into the world. It's what we leave behind. So when you grew up in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. what was that like? It was interesting. It's Jerusalem is a mix of both Palestinians and Israelis, you know, Jews, Arabs, Christians, Muslims. So it's a bit of a melting pot. With that said, it's a city that's also still somewhat segregated. You know, you have the Arab neighborhoods, you have the Israeli neighborhoods. I went to an American school there. So that experience was also relatively different to maybe the average experience in Jerusalem. I think it has a spiritual aura to it that I've not felt in any other place in the world. And I love that. Every time I go back, when I walk the cobblestone streets of the old city, when I'm at the top of the Mount of Olives and I overlook the entire area, it, it still to this day gives me shivers. The flip side to that is it's a bit of an extreme city as well. A lot of the people that you find there are often on the extreme opinion of things. And it's a little different to, for example, the way it is in the Galilee or in Yaffa, near Tel Aviv, so there's pros and cons to everything. And what effect did that have on the way that you think about things that then has affected what you've written and what you've been dedicating your time to? I think it forced me to think about my identity more than it would have had I grown up in a more insular place. So I got to be exposed to a lot of different religions and cultures and mindsets, but even that wasn't that strong until I left Jerusalem. It was like I said in the book, I grew up eating the food at my mom's table and my grandmother's table, and I never thought of this as Palestinian cuisine. This was just the food we ate at home. Then you go abroad and you see your food in relation to other cuisines, and you think, oh, so this is actually Palestinian cuisine. It's defined. And is that the awakening that you had? You came to America for college mm -hmm. at 17, and at that point, you had a greater sense of identity. I was forced to define my identity. You know, when you're I at... Knew. Everyone around you, the first thing you get asked at university, oh, hi, you know, where are you from? And you have to say where you are because this isn't a place where everyone is from the same city. You're coming from all over the world. Initially, I would say, oh, I'm from Jerusalem. And people would be like, oh, my cousin made Aliyah there. And I'm like, I'm Palestinian. And then I get an awkward look. So it took a while. It was a learning process where I would, it's not as simple, oh, I'm from France, I'm from Germany. I'd say, I'm from Jerusalem, but I'm Palestinian. And that sometimes got a conversation going sometimes. It completely shut it down. And what was that like when you met people who judged you, mm -hmm. not about who you were, but where you were from, or an identity that is Palestinian rather than Rim? It took a while to feel comfortable in my own skin, to be able to define and say who I was without feeling apologetic for it in either way or towards anyone. And I think when you feel more comfortable with yourself, people's reactions no longer face you as much. And what was that journey? Like, how did you get more comfortable? Part of it is just with age. Part of it is having children, I think. You mature, you grow, and you start realizing, I have something to offer, I have something to contribute, and not everyone's going to love everything that I do and I say, but I believe in this mission that I'm on, in this thing that I'm trying to put out into the world. and that gives you the confidence to continue doing it. With that said, do I not have moments of doubt and insecurity? Absolutely, all the time. And what is the foundation of that, that insecurity? Look, we all face insecurities. Part of it is being a woman. Part of it is being a minority. Part of it is being an immigrant. It's so many different things. And different insecurities show up at different times. And have, have you overcome those? 
I haven't overcome all of them. <laughs> <laughs> when you do. When I do. When they cycle through. And, I think know. part of it is the feedback that you get when you do something and you see that it is receiving positive feedback when... You know, I remember at one point telling my mother, oh, how did I get into Penn? I must have cheated the system. Oh, how did I get into Warren? I cheated the system. How did I get into McKinsey? I cheated the system. And at one point she says to me, if you're able to cheat all those systems, you're smart enough anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> and I guess that kind of got me to think, like, what I'm doing is fine. Maybe I doubt my talent, my skills, what it is that I'm doing. But if so many other people see something good in it, maybe there is something to it. There's but. definitely, definitely something something to it. You've chosen food mm-hmm. as your way to communicate much larger ideas. Sure. And how did you choose food? So I think food was something that was a big part of my life growing up. I took it for granted, for starters. It wasn't something that I thought much about. I enjoyed it. If my mother left the house, I would sneak into the kitchen and cook. But really? She, yeah. Is that because you were not allowed in the kitchen otherwise? Well, it's not that I... I mean, my mother is like me. She was very controlling in the kitchen. It's my place and that's it. But also part of it was, why are you in the kitchen? Go study. That's what you're supposed to do. So I did, but I still enjoyed cooking. And then I went to university and suddenly I missed her cooking. And so I wanted to replicate it. But there was always this stigma of the kitchen is a sentence. The kitchen is not a place you want to end up. I remember very starkly to this day someone who said to my dad, why waste so much money sending her to university in the U.S.? You know she's going to end up in the kitchen anyway. And I don't know why that comment stuck. I just felt I want to prove to you that that's wrong. And I think that's the reason it took me so long to find my way back to food. Because for the longest time, I looked at the kitchen as a bad life sentence for women. And it was only when I realized that I could end up there out of choice, not circumstance, that it could be a powerful tool that I decided this was where I wanted to be. Now, when you talk about missing the food of your mother and maybe your grandmother, I'm wondering what that means to you. Did it mean you were missing home? Is it the flavors? Like, what was it about that food? What did it mean to you? I think it was more than the actual food and flavors. Yes, granted, it tasted way better than dining hall food, but I think what I really missed was that sense of community, that sense of home, of family, of love, of being taken care of. And that's when I realized that food was such a powerful tool. I remember this very vividly, that before I left, my mother came into my bedroom. I was sitting on the floor packing my bags, and she was carrying jars and bags of zata, frike, all these things. And I thought, what are you doing? Like, I'm going to America. I'm not going to starve. And she insisted I take them. And I think soon after I arrived, I was in my room. It was one morning. I was by myself. I felt a bit homesick, and I opened up the jar of zata to have breakfast, and I smelled it, and I thought, I feel like I'm in my mother's kitchen. And it was very simple. It was just a smell. It wasn't even the taste yet. It was just the smell of it. And I felt like I was back with them again. And so I think I still remember the very first dish I ever cooked, which dorm room kitchens are not an ideal place to cook, by the way, but (laughs) I made ma'lube, which is this dish of layered rice and fried vegetables and chicken. And it was very complex, but I fed the entire floor. And I did that sporadically. I continued to do it. And every time I did that, I just... I felt closer to home. I felt that other people were being drawn in. And I was sharing something that made me feel proud. I was sharing our culture, but I was also sharing the sense of generosity of wanting to feed other people. And that kept me connected to where I came from. So that keeps you connected towards your family. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if it also built bridges in the dorm. You know, like people then could see 
more of you. I think it did because I think something when you share a meal with someone, it breaks down a lot of barriers. You're more comfortable. You're able to ask more questions. You also realize that it's one of the lowest common denominators that people have. We all have to eat. Did people ask interesting questions at meals? Because I can imagine, you know, you're talking about how you would introduce yourself mm -hmm. and they would say like, where are you from? And you tell them that could be like the end right. or the beginning. But I imagine with food, it allows for a deeper conversation that feels a bit less fraught. It does. I think cooking for someone is a very intimate thing. You are with your hands making something that will go into someone's body to nourish them and nourish them also emotionally. You're showing them that you care. And that process itself makes for a better way to have a conversation. I think also when you're young and you're 17 and 18 and you're all at college, you're interested. You want to learn more about people and doing that over a meal helps you have those deeper conversations. And those are the conversations which, as we were discussing before, help me formulate my own ideas about my identity and where I stand. So you began writing down the recipes, the things you remember from your childhood, and you embarked on this sort of a journey of, of cooking and recapturing mm -hmm. the flavors of home. And you write so beautifully about um, you know, cooking mm -hmm. and the, the process and the ingredients. Is it hard to get the ingredients in the state? It's much easier now. Uh, I think in the 1950s when Claudia Rodin came out with her first book, you couldn't even find eggplants and chickpeas in supermarkets. Nowadays you find things like za'atar and harissa and preserved lemon in almost every mainstream supermarket in big cities. So it's definitely easier. Um, my parents still send me a lot of things because they make a lot of things at home. So za'atar, my mother makes it by herself. Uh, olive oil, my family presses their own. Uh, I just came back from there with an entire suitcase of food. Wow, what was in that? So I, I imagine those things. What else was in your suitcase? There's a lot. There's kishik, which is dried fermented yogurt. Um, there was uh, pomegranate molasses, because my father makes it at home. So mat, because my father made I don't know how my parents find the time, actually, because my father works. So, But still, there was uh, different spices that my mother makes. There was labani. There was bread that she baked. There were pastries that she made. And... She still thinks I'm going to starve. <laughs> she sends a lot back. I learned from um, reading what you've written about za'atar because I had always thought it was a blend. Right. But it turns out it's a plant. It's a plant, and the blend is named after that plant. Now, that plant, I think part of the reason for the misconception, the plant is native to the Levant. So you don't really find it outside our area. You find oregano, which is very, very, very similar, but some of it is more peppery, a bit stronger. Thyme is sort of similar to it. But the blend is made from drying the za'atar leaves, mixing them with sesame, sumac, and salt and olive oil. I love hearing you talk about food. You had a phenomenal education, and you've taken somehow the same approach to food. Not academic, but deep. Deep, yes. And tell me, do you study the cuisine? Is it just that you lived it and it's in your bones and you bring it back? It's a combination. So I'm working on my second book now, which I do have to study and research deep. The first book was very much a personal narrative through which we saw the history of Palestinian cuisine. But my proposal was more like a McKinsey project. It was like 100 pages for a 250-page book. <laughs> I know, everything wow. from market analysis to projections and marketing and promotion plans. But it's good, it helped, because nobody knew who I was. So if I just said, hey, I want to do a Palestinian cookbook, people would say, who are, I mean, people said that to me. Who are you? You're not going to get an agent. You're not going to get a publisher. But I think at one point, 
someone said, why would you go to Wharton to write a cookbook? And the truth is, the education you get there is versatile. I think it was that education that helped me sell the idea of what I wanted to do. So I do take that approach. I was joking, I showed a friend of mine the other day, I track my cookbook in Excel. So I do a spreadsheet where I have all the recipes, the different ingredients, what's done, what's not. It's like all these formulas. And he looked at it and was like, are you normal? Like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, that's how my brain works. I think that's one of the reasons also the Palestinian table did so well. The recipes work. I remember the tester for them told my publisher, she goes, I don't really need to test these recipes. I haven't tested recipes that work like this in years. And she was a BBC Good Food recipe tester. So my publisher doesn't even talk to me throughout the year that I'm working. They're just like, where are you? I'm like 50%. They're like, okay, speak soon. That's uh, it. Then just for all you listening, like, that never happens. <laughs> that really never happens. And is that because you're a home cook and you're so precise? Like the control freak thing that you mentioned before, it's really good for cooking. It is. It helps. Because it was hard at first. Because when I was cooking, I was so used to dipping my hand in the salt jar and sprinkling things in the dish. And then once I started cooking, I had to use measuring spoons and measuring cups. and. It took a while to get used to that, but it matters because there are other people who will replicate these recipes in their kitchens, and it's not fair for them to start a recipe and then, you know, you can't say, hey, use one to ten cloves of garlic. I mean, you need to tell them how many cloves of garlic they need to have in that recipe. So one thing I also do is I often describe the flavor profile or what they're looking for because, yes, there are certain people who like different things. My husband always jokes that my salad dressings are made of three parts, one-third lemon, one-third lemon, one-third lemon, because like everything's so sour. So I say, you know, this is supposed to be a sour dish, but if you don't like it, cut back on the lemon, or it's supposed to be a very salty dish. So when I say season to taste, you know that it's still supposed to be salty. And what is the second book? So the second book, it came about actually as a result of writing the first book and then ending up having to do a lot of interviews where I was asked about Palestinian cuisine and the history and I started digging deeper into what is national cuisine. And I realized the concept of a nation state did not come about until the late 18th, early 19th century. Cuisine before was regional. It was, you know, throughout empires, throughout the different occupations, the exchange of culinary uh, traditions. Being the nerd that I am, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Let me get into this research. And so I started seeing the trajectory of food going back all the way to Mesopotamia and cooking tablets and how far it's come along. And I thought, well, look at what we eat today. A big function of that is cross-cultural intersection, uh, travel, trade, even the rise of social media and being able to see what people in a small village in Korea are eating, whereas before you would never have been exposed to that. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. This is Speaking Broadly, recorded at Feast Portland. So in America today, there's a love affair with all things Israeli, mm-hmm. right? There's Israeli restaurants that are well-known and well-regarded. Mm-hmm. The same has not happened for Palestinian food that I'm aware of, mm-hmm. certainly not trend-wise. I can, not yet, yeah. I can feel certain about that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that Palestinian food has somehow been co-opted by Israeli food? Look, it was hard at first. I think that was also one of the triggers where living in London, I saw a lot of dishes being dubbed Israeli. Oh, Israeli hummus. Oh, Israeli zaatan. And I would look at it and think, but my God, I mean, these are things that have been eaten by our people, by Arabs for hundreds and thousands of years. Why is it suddenly being called Israeli? And so I think, you know, when it comes to Israeli and Palestinian cuisine, the issue that's funny is that this battle plays out abroad less so than it does locally. So when you're back home, nobody calls the chopped cucumber and tomato salad Israeli salad. You know what Israelis call it? They call it Arab salad. So back home, people know what it is. But then marketing-wise, abroad, Israelis have done a much better job than Palestinians marketing the food. And so they've called it Israeli. And Israel came into existence in 1948. So a lot of the dishes that they have are, yes, a function of the immigrants that have come to the country. But by and large, if you look at the food history, it is foods that were adopted from the indigenous Palestinian population. Now, when you see people saying Lebanese hummus or Syrian hummus, no one's up in arms about it because there is no political conflict. So I think with Israelis and Palestinians, the battle that is being fought over food, it's a proxy for something much bigger. It's a proxy for the feeling that our identity is threatened, our very existence is put into question. And so food is a way to try to set the record straight. That's a record that you're working very hard I'm working on it, but I'm not the only one. I think it's, like you were saying, it hasn't reached the level that Israeli cuisine has because part of it is I think for a long time Palestinians looked at our political conflict as something that needed to take precedence over everything else. If you focus on food, on culture, on history, you're detracting away from its importance. But now we're realizing that this battle can be fought in many different fields, and I use that term very figuratively. So talking about our food, letting our food tell our story is also a very powerful way to share our narrative, to get people to understand our identity. We're not just people on the news who our entire history is just about war. No, we have a very rich, varied history and traditional cuisine that goes back centuries. And that was a story that I wanted to share. Now, the first book was obviously Palestinian, but the second book is Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm. Do you feel in some way that changes your narrative about yourself and your role in this world? Look, not so much, because even though it's Middle Eastern, the Middle East is almost a hard geography to define, right? Because you have Middle East, then you have the Arab countries, and this is something that I'm going to address in the introduction, which is, yes, I do include recipes from different countries in the region, but since it is a narrative book based on personal research as well, inevitably there's going to be a very heavy weight towards Palestinian dishes and how they've evolved and towards Levantine dishes as well. So in that sense, my narrative doesn't change, but 
we are also, like I mentioned to you, if you go far enough back, the nation state is a relatively new concept. So I do want to get into that as well about how our cuisine was shared. I mean, my great-great-grandmother came from Syria present-day Syria, but back then it didn't matter. You know, she was, they said, oh, she's from Damascus. They referenced the city, but not the country. And so I'm still telling the story of our people over time, and I'm sharing a narrative that shows the human and personal side of our history as well. Since you're not approaching the politics head-on, I'm not, and sort of definitively so, but you're still telling a Palestinian narrative at a time when there's a lot of complexity Mm -hmm. around that. For you as a person, has that been challenging to take the weight or the lightning bolt? What is that like for you as a human being trying to represent a culture? Sometimes it's hard. The truth is I've been criticized for not addressing the political issues head on. And like you were telling me, how do you get over these insecurities? I've spoken quite a bit about I'm not trying to remove or detract from the importance of the political aspect. But we each have certain strengths, and there are different ways to get our point across. And I've found, from personal experience, that letting the food and the culture speak for themselves is sometimes a better way to get your political message across as well. Nobody wants to sit in front of you and have you shove something down their throat. But if you come at it from a different angle, and I mean, this goes as far back as maybe we shouldn't get into this, but like even The Art of War and the book about uh, you know about Chinese war strategies, there's a lot of ways to get someone to your side, to get them to understand. And I find if I share a meal with someone and they get to know me as a person and they know I'm Palestinian, that challenges every misconception they've held about who a Palestinian is. And isn't that more powerful than coming and telling them, you are wrong, this is what it's like and you have to believe it, why should they? But when they get to know you, they're forced to reckon with their own thoughts on their self and that's a much more powerful transformation. This reminds me of your relationship with the chef Mike Salmanov, who's also here in Portland, who's a huge, huge fan of yours (laughs) and a very well-known, well-respected American-Israeli chef. Tell me about that relationship. After my book came out, I sent him a copy of my book. Uh, In 2008, when I was a graduate student at Wharton, I heard about this Israeli restaurant that had opened up, and I was curious to try. So I went there, and I had this dish of frike, which tasted exactly like the one my mother makes. And as someone who had been feeling a severe sense of nostalgia and homesickness, it felt very nice to taste it, but I was also very frustrated that the best Palestinian dish I had eaten since arriving to the U.S. was at an Israeli restaurant. So 10 years later, I'm back in Philadelphia again, against all the odds. I have this book that's just come out, and I thought, you know what? My publisher said, you're sending your books to a lot of people in the industry. Please write short notes. For Mike, I actually wrote a handwritten letter, and I told him about that story. And I said, here's my book. You don't know me, but 10 years ago, I ate at your restaurant. I was very upset or frustrated that so on and so forth. I have the best Palestinian dish there, but here's my book. I'd like you to have it. And he received it the night before he was set to give a speech at a conference on Israeli cuisine. And I found this out later, but he threw out his speech and read my letter instead. (laughs) And then he sent me a message and he says, you know, your book almost brought me to tears. Can you please me? And I thought, why does he want to meet me? But we met and we became good friends. The first thing I said when we met after we spoke a little bit, I said, why don't you come over for lunch? Bring your kids and come over. His kids are the same age as mine. 
and our kids hit it off instantly. We became very good friends, and it's it took a while, you know, the friendships build over time, but we can get into so many different stories of how our friendship has also changed his perspective on what Palestinian cuisine is, what Israeli cuisine is, what Palestinian rights should be and what should happen. And I think that was a much more powerful way than saying, you know what, I'm not going to talk to you, I'm going to boycott you, and that's the end of the story. At the end of the day, as Palestinians, we want our rights, we want our freedom, we want to be our identity to be recognized, and I think this is happening on a personal level. Granted, this is a single story about a single friendship, and sometimes it gets blown up. And But if you could have that on a larger scale, I think one of these is, you know, we say we want a one-state solution. How are you going to have a one-state solution if you don't speak to your neighbor? You start small, you build on it. Sometimes I feel naive that, like, you know, one friendship, what difference can it make? But part of it, like I told you, you know, he now sees me as a Palestinian. He sees what a Palestinian means, what Palestinian food is. And he is forced to reckon with those ideas for himself. And that's a very powerful way to come to opinions on things rather than being forced or told what you have to believe. I think it's also a great model um, for any two sets of people who have preconceived notions about each other. It is. I mean, one day I remember we were prepping, I think, for one of these events together, and I was telling him a story about my grandparents, and I say, yeah, you know, when Palestine fell to the Jews and my uh, grandparents had to flee Haifa, and he starts laughing, and I go, what's going on? He's like, the rhetoric we use is so different. To you, Haifa fell to the Jews. To me, my father was rescued and able to come to Haifa, and he found a home where he was being persecuted, and you see why different people think different things, and maybe i don't know if this is too hopeful but when you kind of see where the other side is coming from how they're thinking it helps you move forward with that said we are two people who are in the world of food who are doing what we can in that particular sphere what's happening outside is way bigger than us and we cannot change it but we at the same time you know sometimes i feel like i'm held responsible for what is happening politically and what is happening in so many other fields but i'm doing my part in the cooking world because that's where i'm at and I think for Palestinians, what I'm doing in the culinary sphere is very important. I'm putting our food on the map. Also, recently, Mike's been called the face of Israeli cuisine, and I've been called the face of Palestinian cuisine in, in the U.S. and the world. And here we are showing that, you know, Palestinians are always upset that Israelis don't recognize it. Well, Mike is recognizing that a lot of the food that he's cooking is from Palestinian origins, and he has no problem with it. The same way I don't have a problem understanding that, yes, Israel is... A nascent country and cuisine is something that's generally hundreds of years old but there is something that is developing and maybe in 100 150 years if there is no conflict I won't have a problem if someone says Israeli homeless today I still feel a bit of a jab you had quite a challenge I'd imagine getting someone to take you on to buy that book mm -hmm. how did you convince them that a hot flashpoint topic mm -hmm. from someone completely unknown mm -hmm. with I imagine no social following. Nothing. I didn't have an Instagram account. There you go. How did you do that? I remember I wrote the proposal and I sent it to a literary consultant. This is someone who you have to pay to actually tell you if your proposal is even good or not. And, you know, the one person who agreed to look at it writes back and says, Reem, this is a masterpiece, but no one's going to publish it. No agent's going to take you on. You're nobody. Spend six months building a media, social media following and then come back. 
And I was like heavily pregnant with my second daughter at the time. I shoved it in a drawer, gave birth, and I was like, yep, that's never going to happen, never going to publish a cookbook. And then a good friend of mine came over one day, someone I respected, and she saw and she said, you're crazy if you don't do this. Like, just send it out to agents. What have you got to lose? And again, sometimes support from people who are your peers and your respect is something that helps you get over your insecurities and your fears. And that was a big push. I always tell her that if it weren't for you, this book probably would not have happened. And I wrote a lot of very targeted email to you. I mean, I had done my research. I used to go sit in bookstores, look at the acknowledgement section, and write down agent names, so on and so forth. So... I sent out very targeted emails to agents. Every single one of them responded. I was shocked because everyone says that's the hardest bit. So I met with a bunch of them, went with someone who I respected, whose work I'd seen before, and simultaneously I had doubts that any agent would take me on, so I had Googled independent publishers. Fiden showed up. No idea who Fiden was at the time. So while I was meeting with publishers, Fiden had said, hey, come in for a meeting. So I show up with a nursing three-month-old baby and leggings and a sweater. And then I go home, and my husband goes, you know, how did the meeting go? I said, it was fine. He goes, you know, they published Noma and El Bulli's cookbooks. I'm like, what? He's like, yep. And you went like this? I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's not going to happen. But in the end, I think I got lucky because Fiden saw in what I was trying to do something worth sharing. And I said to her the first thing as we sat down at the meeting, I said, I know the big elephant in the room is that I don't have a social media following. And she goes, to us, that doesn't matter. Because to us, it's about the quality, it's about the recipes. So if we get buy-in, we will do this. And they did. And I trust what they put out into the world. I don't want a book that's going to be a mass market bestseller and disappear. I want a book that will survive. That's a great story. First of all, tremendous perseverance, great research. And it's so frustrating when people say something like, no one's going to like fill in the blank. No one's going to eat it, no one's going to buy it, no one's going to try it. Like It's that's discouraging. Just... And I think a lot of times, you know, like I'll share my story with you. Someone who's listening to the radio will think, wow, like her story's been an upward trajectory. But what people don't talk about is that the arrow is not pointing upwards consistently. The arrow has loops and dips and ups. And people don't talk about it as much. But I think we need to because there's someone out there who might be listening to this now who's at a low point and thinks this will never happen. But... It's good to know that anyone who's ever made it has had a million obstacles in their way. And what do you think your greatest obstacle was? You know, where did the arrow bend for you? A lot of places. I mean, part of the bending is also sometimes personal insecurities when you start doubting yourself. But for me, for example, I, like, you know, I did my undergrad at Penn. I went straight on to do my MBA, which is very unusual. And then I got a job at McKinsey, which to me was basically, it ticked every single box. It was what everyone wanted. Like here I was, 21 years old, competing with 30 years old for a position, and I was the only one that got it. And I remember I would walk into the office every morning. I'd see McKinsey and company on the wall and think, oh my God, like, I've made it. This is it. And then a few weeks later, I'm like, oh, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just realized, am I living someone else's version of success, not mine? And when I tell this story, it sounds interesting, but at that moment, that reality, when it hits you, it's a very rude awakening. I mean, I would call my mother in the morning crying, like, what am I doing with my life? Is this what I want to be doing? But have I wasted my life? Have I just spent five years doing something else? So I left, and then I went back to school. I got another master's in social psychology, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go get a PhD, and I'm going to teach. And, and then I got pregnant with my second daughter, and I never got the PhD. I went back to work again. And there's a lot of these little short gaps where... It's almost hard to envision that your life is going to change after, but sometimes it's a small break. It's all you need to get onto the next level. And you don't know where that's going to come. 
you can look at your life and think, this is it, I'm at a low point, no break is going to ever happen, but sometimes it's in the most unexpected places. Did your mother ever give you really great advice during these times, you know, because you had achieved what I imagine would be con such a conventional, perfect sense of right. success for her? Look, when I first started talking about food to my mother, she was also of the mindset, but you've got such a good education, why would you throw it away? And sometimes when I asked her about this, she goes, I never said that. <laughs> and then she goes, she says, listen, I just did not understand what it is that you were referring to. I think she's, I mean, nowadays she is beyond proud. When I call her and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm nobody, like, what have I done? It's not important. She's the one that talks me up. She says, listen, like, look at how important this is. You know, we were talking, you and I, before about you don't make money writing cookbooks. So when I say to her, like, what am I doing? She goes, you don't measure things just financially. You measure things by the impact on your community, on this. So she's my number one supporter, but she also, and I try to say this as often as possible, she cooked every single dish in that book for the photo shoot. She, yes, we did the photo shoot at my parents' home. She cooked them all. She, uh, you know, through recipe testing, she tested side by side with me. And it's, I think having a supportive female role model is sometimes underrated, but you need that. And that can be your mother, that can be a colleague, a mentor, but it's so important for women to support other women. And it makes a huge difference. Go mom. Go mom. Um, at the end of the show, I asked my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman they admire who they think all people need to know about. So, I'm going to actually give you two names because they're somewhat related. Um, and since we're talking about food, I'm going to keep it to that area to make it easier. Claudia Rodin, I think, can very easily be credited with bringing Middle Eastern cuisine to the mainstream in the West. And you know how they say, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And I think she, nobody would even be interested in understanding what Palestinian cuisine is if they didn't know what Middle Eastern was. And she really brought it to the forefront. And the other one who I think is often not recognized as much here, her name is Nawal Nasrallah. She's an Iraqi uh, writer, and she translated one of, or several, 10th century and 13th century cookbooks from Arabic into English, which to me have proven vital in researching my second cookbook. And so I think that's also someone else that is important to check out, because sometimes people's work doesn't reach the mainstream because it just doesn't fit the exact way that people like to read books, but the content of what she does is amazing. She's also preserved these recipes and these cookbooks for our generation, for people who don't speak Arabic anymore, and it's fascinating. I will absolutely go check her out. I'm a huge fan of Claudia Rodin, and I'm happy to hear you name her, but this other woman, Noelle Nasrallah, completely fascinating. Thank mm -hmm. you. I'm interested to know mm -hmm. if there's any product that you use mm -hmm. that is greater than the hype. Yes, there is. There's an olive oil that is made back home by a cooperative called Sindiana, and it's a cooperative between Palestinian and Israeli women in the Galilee. I made my husband do a blind taste test between that and some Greek and Italian and whatnot, and by far it was the best one. It tasted exactly like the one that my family makes. And so that product is definitely amazing. Very, very good quality olive oil, and we know how hard it is to get unadulterated, truly good cold press, etc. olive oil. Well, thank you Reem, so much thank for you, uh, coming on Speaking Broadly and sharing your story. If people want to find you, where should they find you? Instagram is very easy. It's just my name, Reem.Cassis. I have a website, but I'm active on Instagram. I generally respond to everyone who reaches out, even by direct messages. Thank you so much for joining me. You know where to find me at Speaking Broadly. 
if you are interested in the type of content that you hear here, it would be great if you rated and reviewed the podcast and subscribed on Apple Podcast. And have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.